I am Lucas Mack, and I'm on a mission to see the hurting get healed and the healed go out and heal others in order for all of us to experience the true love and light we desire. This podcast is me sharing my journey with you so you don't feel alone in your journey. Welcome to the Golden Rule Revolution. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome back to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution. I am Lucas Mack. Thank you for joining on this amazing journey. And today I'm so excited. So I was listening to David Nino Rodriguez's podcast um, recently, and he had this guest on talking about the Bible, UFOs, giants, hybrids, the Nephilim, um, Titans, and so many things that he was talking uh, about from a biblical perspective are things that I've been teaching for many years um, that I haven't really gotten into on the podcast, but I was like, I have to get Ali on. So I'm so excited to bring Ali Tiatatan on the podcast. He is the founder of thinkagainproductions.com. He came out with a documentary in 2006 that went viral. Um, I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes. Um, in this episode, we talk about aliens. We talk about hybrid. We talk about um, what, how the Bible and, and religions and text reference these beings that have been with us throughout history, throughout time, and why we're seeing more of it right now. Um, and this is just going to be part one. Ali and I are going to do part two. I already have that scheduled, him coming up, and we'll probably do more than two parts. Um, a really beautiful soul with a great story. And uh, I think you're going to find this podcast incredibly interesting. So enjoy. Beautiful. Ali, thank you so much um, for joining. And again, everyone, Ali uh, Siadatan is, and did I say it right? I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Siadatan is the founder of thinkagainproductions.com. So I, like I said in the intro of this podcast, um, I think this past Saturday was listening to David Rodriguez. Um, one of his latest podcasts and I see hear Ollie talk and it just lit my spirit up. It, it got me so encouraged, quite frankly, because, and a lot of you have listened to the story of less left Christianity from the confines of that um, because it's become so, I don't even know what it is anymore. It's not the form and the power and the, you know, the Bible says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And it's like, well, who's seeking knowledge nowadays. And here, Ali, I find you and, and uh, I just love what you shared. So thank you for coming on. Oh, you're welcome, Lucas. I'm very happy to be here and to share and converse about the mysteries of God. Amazing. Um, share, share your upbringing and, and how you started getting these downloads or how you started getting these revelations of scripture. Uh, yeah. Uh, my upbringing, uh, yeah, I was born in Iran and kind of in a non-religious family. After the revolution, um, religion was very important in the whole country because the clerics took over and the school system was completely transformed um, where it was basically, you know, Islamicized. And so religion suddenly became, uh, it was shoved down everyone's throat, so to speak. So. I got curious, uh, got stimulated about God. Like, you know, well, is there a God? Who's God? Uh, what am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to read? What am I supposed to do? And I quickly realized that no one in my family uh, and even my friends 
had ever read, for instance, the Quran or knew anything about anything. It was a cultural thing. Even as a child, I thought, oh, this is a cultural thing. So it's, it's everyone just culturally is branded, you know, uh, with a particular uh, faith, depending on where they're born. Right. Um, so I was like, well, it's in Arabic. And I'm like, I speak Farsi because that's the language of your end, Persian. And I wanted to know it in Persian, but no one knew what the translations were. So finally, my aunt gave me some pamphlets that translated some of the daily prayers so I could read what they were. And that was the beginning of my spiritual journey. And when we moved to France, I was introduced to secularism. And the French system is staunchly secular. It, it prides itself. The French Revolution was not just against the king, it was also against the clergy, against uh, the Catholicism. Yeah. In the English and German world, there was the Protestant Reformation, but in the French world, there was the French Revolution. Mm. And so the secular-minded uh, folk that were behind parts of the revolutionary thinking established a school system that said everyone has to go till the age of 13, and people were dragged from their farms to school. And it, the main purpose of it was to secularize children. That was actually the main purpose of the school system. And that continues to be a very, and I was like, wow, so some people don't believe in God. Now, that's a new idea. In the Middle East, you know, that's not really the main paradigm of the culture. So they're atheists. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And so I was introduced to philosophy, but more importantly, critical thinking. Mm. I think that's what I got out of the French school system was critical thinking. And finally, moving to North America, moving to Canada, I was introduced to uh, Protestant, uh, the Protestant faith. And I went on a huge spiritual journey with Eastern thoughts, energy work, meditation, anything I could get my hands on because I was looking to make a connection with God on a personal level, on a mystical level. I used to say to myself, if God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he can appear to me as well. That was kind of my... I internal you know dialogue yeah and but I, but everything failed there was always a door you know mm. finally i went to um the lord led me and it would be too long for me to tell the story of how the lord led me but let's just say the lord led me through like an, a direct intervention mm. uh to a school where i want you know i started to study something that i always had an interest in which was a kung fu which is a form of mm. uh Chinese boxing, it's martial arts. And the teacher had these spiritual studies classes once a week. And at first it was all very into the world of Kung Fu. And you know, it made sense. It was it was in harmony with the thinking that you think comes from that world. And one day when I walked in, he had a Bible in his hand, and he started to speak of it as though it was really the words of God, and he took it literally. And I thought, oh no, this guy's is a Christian and he's a fundamentalist. That's like the worst kind. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I thought I'm going to basically grab my shoes, which were at the door, and run away. I don't, I don't need my gym bag. I don't have anything in it. But then this hand, this white hand, I had a vision. This white hand appeared on my shoulder, and I heard a voice in my head, and it said, you know, this man has taught you many things, and he may have a wisdom about this that you need to hear. And then a feeling of deep peace flew th through my body. Cool. And I thought, okay, it, it, you know, it gave me an idea. And I thought, that's true. Maybe there's something here for me to get. And so through these sessions uh, on Saturdays, the spiritual studies, and 
other people that God sent me in my life there, I came to understand the gospel. And mm. I decided to commit to it as an experiment, really, to be honest. I thought if this really finally creates that connection, that mystical connection mm. that I'm looking for with God, then I'll know it's true. If it doesn't, I'll catalog it as another religion and I'll like move on in my search. And so when I actually did commit to it, in all honesty, I went through the formula of accepting the Lord as, as the atonement sacrifice, as king, as savior, mm. and kind of confessing and went to bed. And the days that followed, an incredibly powerful um, you know, presence came over me. I, I, I'd say energy, but it was really a presence it was because it was God. And suddenly uh, I had this awareness of the presence of God, which has never left me, which is what I wanted. I was like, wow, this worked. And my this it was like fire and there was visions and and my energetic system was now turned on, you know, and I was like, so this is this is now I realize with hindsight that these all of these energies and things like that that we have in the body are really the temple of the Holy Spirit. They were designed by God originally to be inhabited by him. But you know, the the other nefarious forces like the fallen angels, they have assigned you know different meaning to it and trapped us in playing with it essentially you know uh, to take us away from 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 this connection um so this was very interesting to me and i started to study the bible i i, I was like wow this actually worked nothing else worked but this worked yeah. okay I, I wonder what's in this book then and so i you know i read the uh, gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation, like in, in, in the first month, I was like, I didn't know where to start. You know, I was like, yeah. I'm supposed to read this. Yeah. And so this was in 1991. Um, and then in um, 1996, uh, I was a series of other revelations were coming, such as the sons of God in the book of Genesis and their hybrid offspring, the Nephilim. And this was really a private, you know, small uh, home church, basically. And this was not um, some, you know, uh, I wasn't reading a book about this or there wasn't some author. I didn't even know that anybody else in the world was thinking about these things. And the notion of the gods in the Bible, and it was all very interesting, and I was like looking into it. Mm. But then in 1999, I went to Iran to deliver a message to my father, who's, who's passed away since. Mm. And during that, like a scriptural message, I think God inspired me, and I went. And that trip was an incredible trip. Uh, he came to faith, and his wife came to faith, and many other people did. It was just just the hand of God was over that trip. I mean, it was, it was, I don't like to use the word magical, but it seemed like that, like yeah, everything yeah. was yeah. supernaturally falling into place. And then we were driving at night, you know, past midnight, we we're driving from Tehran to Shiraz, which is an 11 hour drive, but we were in the first leg of the journey, Tehran to Isfahan, we we're gonna stay in Isfahan. And it was late in the early hours of the morning and um, not a, no one really on the highway, the odd car that goes by, just the stars and the moon, the kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's an Arizona style highway, like it's, it's, it's not sand dunes, it's rocky desert. And I had my back to the door, she was driving and he was sitting in the middle of the back seat, we're in a small SUV. And there she started to point out the window and uh, we, you know, there was, 
he started going wah, wah, wah. she started to make these uncoherent sounds. I was so busy talking, I didn't really pay attention. My dad looked and said, what's wrong, Nima? Then he looked and he saw the same thing that she saw. And I was, and she started to do the same thing. They were both going, <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong with you guys? So I had my back to the passenger door talking to both of them like this. So I just sat down properly in my seat to see what they were looking at. And that's when I saw this very large object coming towards us. Mm. If it was on the ground, it would be like three, four stories high and very wide, huge. Um, and it, I could see it had divisions on it, and it had green lights. It was glowing green, like a pulsating green light, but I could see it had green lights all around it. And this thing came slowly down until it was perpendicular to us, and this black tube came out of the ground, and this thing went on top of it, and it went into the ground wow and then she said this is a sign from god to tell us that all that is ali is saying is true mm -hmm. to show us that all that ali is saying is true like about the bible and about the jesus but you know all of these yeshua and all yeah so i was like okay um i just sat quietly in my seat and i thought wow wow was, you know i was shocked mm -hmm. and even though you know philosophically I had looked into these things, and, and even though I had pondered its connection to the Bible, but you know, something inside of you is like, well, really, you know, you're, you're kind of like yeah. wondering, right? Yeah. But after this, I was like, so I came back, uh, and when I got back here, so this was December of 1999, I started to look into it in a much more uh, focused way. Mm. Um, I dove deep in to see, you know, this connection. And with hindsight, looking back at my own research and what came of it and the research of others, uh, now that enough years have passed, if I were to ask myself, what's really going on here? I would say that God is unveiling the angelic dimension of the Bible. Love it. Yeah. There has been several important pieces of the puzzle that have come to light um, in, in the 20th century. Um, God is moving our understanding of scripture forward. And now this research is about unveiling the angelic part because there is a part of our story, which is the war of angels um, and the colliding of two kingdoms uh, that may be coming to head um, whether it happens in our lifetime or soon after, I don't know, but we're kind of in the general season of it, it seems. Yes. So, so God's like, okay, I need you now. You guys need to understand this portion of what I've, my revelation to you. Mm. Um, but at the beginning of the research, it was just like, wow, what is this? How do the dots connect? And as the information uh, piled up and I saw all the connections, uh, and I feel that I think we cracked the code, you know, of how it all connects together mm. from the beginning of history to this moment in time at, from the point of view of the Bible. Um, and then I felt I needed to tell this to the whole world. Uh, it was this, there was a sense of urgency. Some of these discoveries were very uh, important mm. and urgent. And I just wanted to tell it mainly to people, I think, who believe in, in the Bible at this point. Yeah. Um, and um, 
I, at this point, I had become actually a kung fu teacher. I was oh. professionally teaching that, and I was teaching in a company. Um, this was right before the dot com crash, mm. where they made uh, um, videos for for the nascent internet age, mm. and and these were funny videos. And if you put it on your website, you get a lot of hits. People would come to your website just to watch the video. And this was a way of driving traffic to anything. It could be just a bank, an old boring bank that no one would go to your website. But hey, there's this funny video that can only be seen on your website. Yeah. And and so these guys, you know, um, had hired me to teach them uh, kung fu three times a week cool. because they traveled around the world to make these videos. And sometimes they were in seedy areas and they wanted to know how to defend themselves. Mm. And and so one of the guys, as I was leaving, he said to me, "You know, the world is, a, is not in a good place. Our only hope is the UFOs." He just said that, and I and I turned around to him and I said, "Well, actually, you might want to rethink that." because mm -hmm. I've done a lot of research into this and it's not what you think. And so we sat for about two hours and I told him everything. And he said, well, if you ever want to make a documentary about this, let me know because he was in the audiovisual world. Wow. And that's nice. The next week I said, let's do it. And so you, all kinds of forces came together to make UFOs, angels and gods that was released in 2006 and it went viral. It became one of the most popular things you could watch on Google video, which was kind of before YouTube. And people were contacting me from all around the world. Uh, people called me from Hollywood. Um, one day I am in my studio and the door opens and this Catholic priest and two nuns walk in. And I thought they were in the wrong place. I'm like, uh, can I help you? And they're like, oh, we've come to meet you. We saw your documentary. And so it was, so I realized, okay, this is, this, this is important stuff. Uh, and God wants people to know it. And over the years, I've seen other researchers come at it. Uh, so, it, and it's come to the same conclusion. So I think that God is inspiring these ideas in people's minds and hearts. Uh, and uh, that, that's kind of what brings me um, to share this knowledge with you and your audience as well. It's so cool. Uh, everyone listening, they're, I've been saying this for a long time. We have been conditioned to... I ask people all the time, what do they say aliens come in? They come in one banner, one word. We come in peace. We come in peace. We come in peace. We come in peace. And they have to have some explanation for the rapture to come. That, And I used to believe, actually, Ali, and I love your thoughts on this, that the rapture, I used to believe in that evangelical that the, the Christians are going to get removed and it made sense logically that the light has to be removed. So darkness is judged because God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. So just like in Genesis one, two, there was no, there was darkness upon the face of the deep, but God comes. But now I'm realizing that I think the, the, the snatching away is all the wicked from, from the earth. And so the false, there's always an imitation, like Cain had Enoch and then Cessline has Enoch, uh, you know, God does this, Satan does this. There's always like an imitation, this back and forth between what is perceived to be true and what is the truth. And so I think it's fascinating that we've been conditioned that aliens come in peace, but then who's the, who gets blamed for the lack of peace and unity in this ecumenical one world, new world order is the Bible believing or 
not even Bible believing, but truth seeking, non-compliant souls that came to, I don't even know. I'm still searching. I think for to be co to reign with Jesus on this earth, to be Kings and priests on this earth and not serve the system. Um, so yeah, I just share that to say, I love yeah, no, it and it's fascinating to be in this time right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes as far as the alien and this messaging you're talking about, you know, they come in peace. Um, it, early on, um, the UFO, the modern UFO phenomenon officially begins in 1947 mm. with Kenneth Arnold, June 24th. Um, you can go on YouTube, on YouTube and listen to Kenneth Arnold being interviewed on a radio show mm. uh, and, and listen to his testimony. It's quite interesting. Um, um, but, but early on, like already by 1948, there are um, advisors advising the U.S. government saying that they've come to help us uh, transition from our war, warlike ways. We don't, they don't want nuclear, because uh, uh, we just on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that caught their attention, and they don't want nuclear uh, knowledge to be imported or exported into the universe. Mm. And they've come to help us. And oh, how could they possibly know so early on what exactly is the comprehensive intention of, you know, quote-unquote UFOs? But by 1951, we already see Hollywood making a movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm. in which the story is effectively an alien has come to Earth to show overwhelming power and deliver that message once he gets everyone's attention, that you got to put away your warlike ways and we're going to help you transition into the galactic community, which is a peaceful, you know, more enlightened uh, place mm -hmm. than, than, than present-day Earth. Mm -hmm. And that's 1951 or 52, one of those two years, the day the Earth stood still. And you think, well, now Hollywood is taking that message and broadcasting it into the culture when these things just appeared. Um, and that is really the crux of the matter. These things didn't just appear. Mm. They are an ancient presence. And that's what my research dug up. Um, basically, um, it comes down, first of all, I think, perhaps to worldview. Um, where are we? Where mm. is the earth? You know, what is the true nature of reality? And then we can contextualize all of these things in it once we know what the true nature of reality is. And that's, of course, a huge question because the earth, uh, we're, it's a mystery. I mean, where is the universe? Well, we don't really know. You could tell me the Earth is in the universe, but where is the universe? Mm. We don't really have a larger context, and context determines meaning. So we don't really know where we are. And since we don't really know where we are, then anything's uh, open. Uh, anything is up for grabs. Anything oh. could be possible, right? Yeah. I mean, the yeah. moon could be made out of cheese yeah. until we actually yeah. go on it, right? Yeah. So anything is possible. And we could sit in that place of humility and just say, well, we don't know. Mm. Uh, we could take the scientific method uh, of Descartes, tabla rasa, and start measuring everything and trying to figure it out, mm. you know, logically and, and, and create our own version of, of understanding. But that would mean that only when we have cataloged all of existence, including all of the universe, could we finally come to conclusions? Mm. Until then, we'd have to hold off because we're just cataloging right. data, and which is again, you know, so, so we, there's no conclusion to, and that method doesn't lead us into anything other than assumptions. Um, 
we, we have too little information. So if God indeed has revealed the nature of reality to us through his prophets and has recorded it for all the generations and nations that have access to, if God has been good enough to not leave us in darkness, then that definitely is a solution to figuring out this mystery. Um, so the biblical view of reality uh, places us in the Shamaim and the Eretz, the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. So there are three heavens. The first heaven is the sky where the birds fly. And, you know, when I look at the satellite imagery just on my screensaver of the planet Earth, you know, there's this, it seems like this thick, you know, layer of atmosphere, right? And that's 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 the first heavens. Mm. Uh, and and the second heavens in the Bible is where the sun, moon, and stars are located. Mm -hmm. And we call that the universe. And then there is the third heaven, which is the temple at the heart of time and space where God dwells. And, you know, some of his entourage is there. Uh, um, so there are three heavens, and that's why it's plural, Shamayim. And what's cool about that, Ali, is if you put that, this is what I teach, like, that's the vertical uh, understanding in Genesis 1. But if you put it horizontal, that's the temple. That's the, yeah. that's the tabernacle, how Moses was instructed how we enter to the holies of holies. The holies are the outer courts is first, second, and third. So it's, it's amazing it. how everything ties together as one succinct message. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons the Bible is decipherable hmm. and also coherent. Yes. That all the pieces, you know, the puzzle fit together. Obviously, there must have been one mind yes. behind all of these 66, you know, Protestant books. Like. Yes. So um, uh, the temple itself has that design. You're absolutely right. It mirrors, you know, the heavens. In our general, and that's why in English it's plural as well, heavens, because mm -hmm. it's translating that. I was, I remember watching Bill Clinton give the um, State of Union speech one year, and he said we're going to invest in the exploration of the heavens. Mm. Because until recently in Old English, that really was the term for the universe. Wow. And, um, mm. but in our culture, and, and there's a whole series of thoughts that, have created a deviation. It, it's a long story. It goes back to the very early days of the church mm -hmm. and the Hellenistic, the Greek influence into it. Um, but we have come to understand heaven without an S as being this spiritual place mm -hmm. uh, of ghosts and spirits where even Jesus has become a spirit, even though there's already a spirit version of God, the Holy Spirit. Yep. He is the son of David, you know. He, yep. There's one of us sitting on the throne of the universe. That's what we are to understand. So there is this idea that has come to the Western church, which is that heaven is a place of ghosts and spirits. Mm. And the universe, well, it's just, we don't know, much, we don't know where, to, where to put that. It's just a bad, ugly thing, you know, the physical world is profane. It's a Middle Ages idea. And therefore, that which is not profane, that which is spiritual is non-physical. These are taking actually from Gnostic concepts of reality that entered Christianity early on, but they were really amplified by origin, mm -hmm. St. Augustine's teacher. Mm -hmm. And since St. Augustine echoed those ideas and he formed the basis of Orthodox, Catholic and Protestant Christianity, then these ideas continue to be with us. Right. 
And so when we think about the world in this way, and we think of angels as just spirits that take human form for a second, even though the Bible doesn't uh, you know, say that, uh, and then we think of the UFO phenomenon, and we have this whole secular perspective that comes from Galileo and Descartes and Newton and um, this whole tradition that creates for us an alternative reality. We're no longer in the heavens in their thinking. We're in the universe. What's the universe? Well, the universe is a place of gases and rocks and all that stuff. Hmm. And how is it populated where Darwin's hypothesis comes into play in that puzzle and says, well, we evolved here and others evolved elsewhere and we eventually came up with technology and so did they. And for some reason, they were visiting us. So now the concept of alien is created. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, a person has to decide, are we in the, you know, secular scientific universe or are we in the heavens and on the earth? Mm. And is this the host of the heavens mm. and we the host of the earth or are these Darwinian aliens, right? So first of all, there's kind of a little bit of a, the mind. That's good. That's good. Yes. In, like, which is the true nature of reality? Which lens do mm. I use in order to, to see reality? And then I can contextualize these beings. And that's where the Bible comes in because the Bible then places beings inside of this shaman yes. heavens like Isaiah um, or the book of Psalm, for instance, um, Psalm, I think it's 68 verse uh, 67 verse 18, I think. Let me just pull it up very quickly. Um, or is it 68? Yeah, it's chapter 68 verse 17 of the book of Psalms. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. This is what this translation says. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So basically the Mount Sinai has become the court of God as the presence of God and his angels has descended on it. That's now the word chariots of God um, is Rechev and Elohim. So let's look at those two words, Rechev and Elohim. Um, basically we see the story of the prophet Elijah mm -hmm. and he is taken up in a chariot of fire and horses of fire. Mm -hmm. Rechev Esh, like chariots of fire and horses of fire. Mm. And he's taken up to the heavens, like in, he's up, you know, he's gone. And Elijah has a disciple, Elisha. And Elisha is running away from the Assyrian. And he comes to a place, I think, called Dotan. And there he is with his own disciple now. Mm. Elijah is gone, but Elisha is there. And the chariots of the king of Assyria have surrounded the city. And the disciple of Elisha is afraid. Mm. This is in the book of Kings. Mm. And so Elisha prays to God that God may open his eyes, yeah, that, that he may see that the ones that are with them, you know, are more numerous than the ones kind of attacking them. And God opens his eyes. And that is where the disciple sees, again, these chariots of fire that surround mm. them, these you know, Rechavesh, as opposed to the chariots, which is the same word of the kings of Assyria, but those chariots are without the fire part. So the Bible distinguishes 
um, by, by adding that word of fire. And what does this Hebrew word rechav mean? What's the root of it, RKV? The root of it is um, something that carries you from A to B, to ride. That's actually what it means, to ride. Mm. And so it, its proper translation is vehicle, something to ride. And until recently, there was no other vehicle than chariot. So the translators felt comfortable just bypassing vehicle and writing chariot because well, there's no other vehicle. Mm. So, you know, and that's how the idea comes about. Like when and, the, and this is good. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I sorry, but, I, <laughs> but what's cool is there's only one concept ever of light. When Jesus says you're the light of the world, everyone was like, we're the fire. Cause there was no electricity. So the ash the fire when God is a consuming fire, the only concept of light that they had at the time is fire. So you're saying these are vehicles of light. Yes. You know, that, that yeah. heavenly craft, some have called it. Yeah. That's right? so, so cool. So yeah. the way that the angels are moving between the realms, between these heavens, the first, second, and third, is by using these rechav, uh, these vehicles. That's so cool. And, and that's in the Bible. And... So the, um, uh, um, just to come back to what I was saying, uh, with the, oh yeah. so in the Israel, the first train line uh, was Jaffa to Jerusalem. Mm. And when they wanted to name it, they realized, wait, we don't have a term for train. You know, as Hebrew is becoming a language again, it's a miraculous thing. And, and so they looked into the Bible to see you know, if they could find one. And they settled exactly on the RKV root. That's why they call it the Rikvat, which is the plural. It means wagons. Like, you know, each wagon is like a Rekev, but attached together becomes Rikvat. So they took it from this root, again, to emphasize that it is something that carries and you can ride. That's so cool. And, and I like you know, what you're saying about the relationship between fire actually being also light. That's, that's profound. Um, so these uh, is what Elisha sees, but it's what Elijah is taken up with. And here in Psalms 68, verse 17, we hear the chariots of God. So the Rechev, and the word here is Elohim. And, you know, that requires really its own uh, conversation. It's not mm -hmm. something I can throw in in detail because that was a huge revelation that God gave us. And in the middle of the 1990s, we we unlocked the word, or he God unlocked the word Elohim for us. Mm. But the short of it, just to carry this conversation to the end, is that the word Elohim can mean angels as well as God. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just mean God. Mm -hmm. um, and also refers to the gods of the nations, like Elohim Hametzchaim, the gods of Egypt, which are judged at the Passover. And so what we see here is uh, that this could actually be the chariots of angels, uh, that, that they are present with God, mm. you know, the angel of the Lord, uh, who, who, who is giving the Torah to um, the sons of Jacob at Mount Sinai. So the angels are present with God. Mm. Uh, and that's why it says there are tens of thousands, thousands upon thousands right here. Um, so the, this could actually also refer to these vehicles of angels. And so the idea that angels have vehicles in the Bible, that they don't just take on human clothing for a moment and they open a dimensional you know, gate by using their hands or something, and they walk through, that, that was kind of Christian uh, tradition, right? The same way that 
um, the painters of the Renaissance added bird-like wings to men um, or created little boys. Uh, you know, the, the cherubim in the Bible are mighty beings of the highest order. They're not little boys with tiny little wings. Yes. So that imagery kind of corrupted or informed our thinking. Mm. You know, perhaps Raffaello or Michelangelo were like, okay, these guys come from somewhere. Let's just put bird wings as a symbol of they're coming from elsewhere. Mm. But somehow it got calcified in our imaginations. And we, when we think of angels, we don't see them through the pages of the Bible. We see them through the paintings of the masters of the Renaissance. Mm. And even movies on Netflix continue to propagate, you know, these ideas. But as I started to meditate on this, suddenly the concept of angels in the Bible appeared more like this phenomenon that, that people were seeing. Um, in um, When you go to another very fascinating passage, which is in Isaiah 66, verse 15, Isaiah 66 is an apocalyptic um, chapter. And... In Isaiah 66, verse 15, it says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots hmm. like the whirlwind to hmm. render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Hmm. So now God coming to the earth, and if you believe that, you know, Jesus was Messiah, then now you believe that God is returning to the earth with hmm. heaven's armies because he said that he could call upon, you know, legions of armies to come, like, you know, 72,000 angels. And so he comes back, and that's why he's called um, Adonai Tzvaut, the Lord of Heaven's armies. Mm. And so there is an army, and how are they getting to the earth? Are they coming more with these? So here the word is different. It's Merkeva. It still comes from the same root word, RKV, mm. to ride. Merkava can mean like a carriage, you know, like you could actually, there's a tank in Israel called the Merkava tank mm. because, you know, that's it's something that moves like a carriage, you know, and it carries the people that are in it. Ezekiel has a vision of this chariot of gods, that, and he, what he sees is kind of this like crystal, you know, surface, like a, and then underneath it, there's four, you know, angelic beings. They have iron legs they have wings but the wings only go up and stand when they fly and they come down when they stand they don't flap and 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 their faces are very mysterious and they next to them there are wheels that are intertwined within wheels kind of like this like one is moving this way the other is moving the other way mm. and then on top of this crystal thing that's on their shoulders sits the throne and god god commands these angels and the angels command the wheels, and this thing can go anywhere. That's the that's what Ezekiel sees, and so that is the Merkava of God. And uh, these are also drawn on the um, temple architecture on the mercy seat. These things are are actually added there. Um, it says in the Book of Chronicles. So there is definitely this this thing. So so we're kind of when you're coming from a place of mystery that we don't really know the makeup of the universe. We don't know how all of its components connect together. We don't really know where we are. And we're kind of now going to look into the Bible, see if we get any information about this thing we're inside of. So you realize, okay, first of all, it has three levels, and that's what is called the heavens. And then there's the flat earth upon which we stand, the earth. Yes. 
And then you realize that, oh, the angels use these rechev to go and come, and even God uses one, but his is called Merkava. And by the way, rechev, by extension, um, the plural can mean cavalry, mm-hmm. right? Because many chariots form cavalry, mm-hmm. right? So God is coming literally with a cavalry, yes. you know, like the Song of Songs. And so to, to deliver the beloved or to, to finish the, uh, have the wedding, you know, there's been a betrothal, but now he's going to build a house to prepare a place like in Jewish tradition. And now he's coming to, to receive the bride yes. into that place. And so this idea that, wait a second, okay, these guys are actually flying around in these things to this day. And we know that the Bible says one third of the angels have rebelled against God. Um, and when you look into the modern day UFO phenomenon, strange as it may be, this research is by top guys like John Mack from head of psychiatry at Harvard University, mm. or David Jacobs from Temple University. The heart of the UFO phenomenon, I know it's gonna to sound totally unbelievable, and you gotta you gotta watch the documentary to see David Jacobs take you through it all with his research, but basically it's the creation of hybrids. Mm-hmm. I know it's now it's like we've now taken yet one more leap into into insanity, but yeah. These are people who are normal. They have very important jobs that we all respect, judges, police officers, and ministers, etc. And they, this is their experience. And so the creation of hybrids, and that if the chariots, if the UFOs made these vehicles in the Bible real for us, mm. the idea of modern-day hybrids suddenly brought to our attention the ancient giants or ancient hybrids. Um, when you're now reading Genesis and it says that the sons of God took wives from the daughters of Adam and they, their children were the Nephilim, uh, the giants in English. And that was like, okay, well, they're ancient hybrids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be possible because we're, these guys are documenting modern day hybrids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then suddenly you see immediately for pretty much that through the ages, all the nations, spoke of these you know demigods or titans mm-hmm. the uh, anunnaki or the you know different right. yeah, yeah yeah yes the the, the anunnaki the titans mm-hmm. the demigods i'd say is the most common term whether it's in the indian pantheon like the most uh ancient indian scripture the sanskrit scripture the vedic text the yep. first one the regveda which is the worship of indra indra is a demigod or the code of hammurabi Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the oldest law codes, which you can see in the Louvre Museum in Paris. I've seen the version of the Code of Hammurabi, a real one, in the Museum of Pre-Islamic History in Tehran. Wow. There is the sun god, Shams, who's called Apollo by the Greeks. And he is sitting on a throne, handing a scroll to the Hammurabi, the king, who stands before him. Mm. And that's why the – and that's the story – of the birth of all the civilizations, by the way, whether it's Moses going up on the mountain and coming down with the Torah and kickstarting the Hebrew civilization, and those laws continue to be with us, or whether it's Muhammad, the most recent example, mm-hmm. you know, the Arabs live in the middle of uh, a desert flanked by the Persian and Greek civilizations, and Muhammad says he's getting a download, a recitation. That's what Quran means, and the Islamic civilization is born with a worldview and understanding. So Jesus, you know, comes down, God enters um, the assembly of his people, 
And he only speaks for a few years, but his words change the Roman Empire and usher in the monotheistic era. Mm. So whether it's the story of Jesus or Moses or Muhammad or uh, the Code of Hammurabi or the Vedic texts of India, which are the basis of the civilization that came out of the Hindus Valley, all the civilizations, like it says in some of the opening statements in the documentary, all the civilizations attribute their genesis to the gods. Mm. And, and that's, we are, the codes have been downloaded that form the worldview. They're put inside of these sacred texts, which we, whose authorship is not human. Mm. And then we begin to function in the world born of the matrices of the codes that are handed down. So the story of the giants became very real, but then the huge mystery that the Lord unveiled for us was the story of their parents, mm. the sons of God the gods of the nations uh, and how they were also real and their influence over the nations, the same way that God chose Israel to communicate through his instructions, select Kings. God chose the line of David as kingdom and then became entered, you know, the line of David himself. There was a comp competing power structure created by the fallen angels over the nations. Hmm. Um, and the, this had to do with the mystery of the word Elohim. And I can open it up if there's time for us to do that. Um, well, let me, I, cause I, first of all, I'm so thankful that you have this knowledge. I want to do, we have to do another part. We have to do more if you are open to that, because we got uh, 10 minutes left and I want to um, think talking about everyone. Look, if, this is what you helped me on uh, Saturday when I listened to you and David talk. I was thinking about why Jesus is so profound in many, many ways. I mean, I'm reading uh, Manly P. Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages, and they're talking about the secret mystery schools and how they viewed the people. They viewed them as sheep, which is where we can see that they call the herds. They lower the populations. They're constantly looking at people as sheep, which is why Jesus calls. He never calls us sheep. He's saying, they call you sheep. And I'm telling you that I will go after, you're so valuable that I'll go after the one lost. And he's like basically telling these hybrid Nephilim, uh, you know, reptilian blue blood creature power structures, the, the Edemic line who you call sheep, who Abel brought, obediently and Cain in the process of time brought her the food of the ground. So I believe that um, real quick, I think Cain and Abel were both high priests before God. And that's why it says in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought her the fruit of the ground. And God says like, why are you angry? Like, you know, what's right. Yeah. I mean, what, what's the big surprise here. And then later, so then there was only one high priest, you know, Seth replaced Abel. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then the seventh from Adam being Enoch, God takes him. Then we have Noah two, two generations later. He's perfect and just in his generations. Lamech lived 777 years. Okay, this is, we see this line. But then there's this hybrid line of the serpent and the woman the Canaanite bloodline, this reptilian blue bloods, which is all the Vedic texts. What are all the ancient Hindu gods colored as blue? What right. is, what do we hear ruling the world? Oh, they're the blue bloods. And why do they intermarry with each other? Cause they're trying to keep whatever power structures in their bloodline 
still in the spiritual connection that they have. Yes. And then we have Jesus coming and talking to the Edemic bloodline, giving them all the knowledge that the secret mystery schools had, brings them to the, the lowest of the low in their eyes and elevates them above the angels, which is Psalm 8 says man's made a little lower, but it made above, brings above the angels. And so they hate Jesus and they hate this understanding because they have no power once we find out the truth. So I guess where we go in just a few minutes left is I would love you to just talk about the hybrids more. Let's, let's land on that because I have so much more. I I just want you to talk. Okay. So the hybrids, um, they appear in Genesis six for the first time and they create an entire civilization. Hmm. Um, They give knowledge. So the book of Enoch, you mentioned Enoch, the book of Enoch points out there's 200 of them that arrive on Mount Hermon. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of look at when the children of Israel come to take the land, there's these hybrid kings. There's Bashan, the king of Og, and Sihon. And it is around Mount Hermon. That's where Bashan is. Even And there's a prophecy of King David, apparently about the Lord on, on the cross. And he says that I'm surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. That's what David writes in Psalm 22. And so there is this, you know, presence. And, if, and that's where the, all of these tribes that live in Israel. Um, so the hybrids exist before and they create a civilization. They, the, their fathers hand down knowledge. There are seven specific bodies of knowledge that we would classify as science, essentially, handed down to corrupt the world. And even when you look at the line of Cain, and I think in Genesis chapter 5, and Cain's children each, you know, have a body of knowledge from metallurgy with Tubal Cain to music. Um, well, you know, you look at that and you think that's interesting, but I think it's uh, Rashi, a Jewish commentator from the Middle Ages, he points out that each one of those bodies of knowledge was used for idol worship. Hmm. That, that that is why it is mentioned in the line of Cain, that, that these, these that were not just bodies of knowledge. And of course, Cain himself uh, in a, builds a city, which means that he has the knowledge of geometry and architecture. So there's knowledge handed down and a massive civilization is created and God purges the earth through the flood. And Noah survives. But we are told that this creation of hybrids also occurred afterwards. And so the next time we see them, there are some tribes of hybrids going after Abraham in the War of Ten Kings. That's in Genesis chapter 14. So as God then puts his hand on Abraham, um, the whole story is to restore the place of Adam in the universe, Mm. the image bearer of God, who has to bring God's instructions to the creation. Mm. And so this is kind of to prevent that because there's a competing power structure with a leader who seeks that place for himself. He wants to be the first principle of the created order. And Adam is a bit of a competition here. So there's now kind of a race to restore Adam. Um, And Abraham is selected. And so these kings then target him in the story. And from there, we see when the children of Israel come to land, there are giants living on the land, Nephilim living on the land, the Anakim, the Zanzunim, the Raphaim. And there is even a place called Raphaim Gilgal, which is, again, close to Mount Hermon, which was where these guys were, were living, had cities. And so... There's another mention as though um, once God reveals to Abraham the boundaries of land and the project to do this, 
Satan then plants his seeds on the land uh, to prevent this from happening, uh, or to make it difficult, or to slow it down. And, and one could arguably say that it worked, even though God uses everything ultimately, you know, for his own purposes. Um, and so that's the second time we see them. They're in the land. And then we see Goliath, and he has four brothers, and he's of the Nephilim. He's a descendant. Mm. And we have lots of records in the Middle East where these guys were hired as mercenaries to help shift the balance of power. And that's probably what Goliath and his brothers were hired by the Philistines as mercenaries. So that in the battle of champions, usually two champions would fight it out. And if whoever won, that army kind of would have won. Mm -hmm. um, and so they could use uh, the, him as a champion. And so David then defeats Goliath, but he takes four other stones in his pocket because Goliath has four brothers. Yep, that's right. Just in case. But they don't <laughs> show up. So that's when we see really David... I think is the one that ends this Nephilim intrusion into the land. But the Lord in his Matthew 24 speech, where he is asked about the end of the age, he says, it will be like the days of Noah. Hmm. As it were, you know, the days of Noah shall it be yes. the days of the coming son of man. Yes. And so why are all of these historical things in the, in the old Testament? The, the belief is because they each represent an age, they're, they're a prototype of a future age mm. where this information will be needed again until all prophecy is fulfilled. Mm. So the age of Noah is upon us, and that would mean that there would be a massive uptick in the Nephilim presence. And that's what I discovered when I looked into the phenomenon of you know abductions, to put it in a secular term, like UFO abductions. That's the secular advisor, but we're now following an ancient history that is well documented in the Bible and by all the nations. You know, I was in Persopolis and my dad was an architect and we were talking about the pillars of Persopolis, the, mm. one of the uh, capitals of Persia. And he said, you know, even today it would be difficult for us to build these pillars. I wonder how they did it. And there was a villager there with his kids. I think uh, it was Mary's day off. And I kind of turned around to him nearly kind of, I think jokingly, maybe arrogantly, I said to him, sir, how do you think these pillars were erected? And then he comes playing with his little girl and let his little girl go. And he stood up straight. He took my question very seriously. And I realized, oh, that's, he's about to give me a serious answer. And he said, well, that we have ancient cuneiform writings. And in these writings, it says that they had champions with them. And these champions were giants. And they are the ones that taught them how to build these things. Mm. And I was like, wow. So there's this oral tradition. There's written records coming from all the nations. Right. It's only secular uh, archaeologists, especially one guy, um, Gordon Child, who decided for all of us that this was all myth. Mm. But then comes the reality, the empirical evidence for the modern UFO phenomenon that drags all of this ancient history back out of the realm of myth into the realm of history. And this, of course, is a piece of a puzzle. But the short of it is that the Nephilim always get defeated every single time. Mm -hmm. They are not to exist. They're, and so this version, this uptick today, will also be defeated perhaps by even the coming of the Son of God and his angels are. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, this is amazing and i love hearing all this um 
I love, I think that's the big thing that the Nephilim are always defeated. Um, and I got to wrap here in a sec, but I would, I would love to have you come on. Cause I think we're just now setting the, the framework for yes, the larger cosmic, the story. larger, the larger cosmic story. Um, and I think one of the things that as we wrap here is so interesting that the spies saw the, the giants in the land and they, Christianity has taught it that they're the size of Goliath, but they say that we are as grasshoppers in their size. So they were the Titans of the earth at that point. Exactly. And then later on that through entropy, I guess, is the order yes. turns to disorder mm-hmm. and they can't breed as big and strong and spiritually as powerful. Yes. Um, it's that's why it says Goliath was a descendant of the Yes. Nephilim. Yes. That's right. Um, please come back. Uh, I, I've so enjoyed this and really appreciate you and everyone listening, grab a Bible. I, I talk about, usually I talk about grab a King James Bible, compare it to what they ever source they have, whatever translate just get another study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that is what we need in this day and age more than ever. So brother Ali, thank you. You're welcome, Lucas. And, We'll continue this conversation and kind of lay out the the cosmic tale of the Bible and how it leads us back to the modern day, because it all started with that thing I saw. So how does it all come back to define that properly from the biblical lens? And what is this UFO phenomenon? Where is it all going? In part Um, two. In part part two, two, coming up. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I love listening to Ali. There's so much so much going on in the world right now that relates to the Bible. And um, in Genesis, when God keeps saying the seed in itself, the seed in itself, the seed in itself, and it was good, it's because there was crossbreeding of seed and there's Genesis, the genetic code of this entire fabric that we find ourselves in, the realm, the dimensions, the humans. Um, And so this is just, uh, Ollie, I'm so thankful you came on. Thank you, brother. I cannot wait for part two. Um, and again, everyone find his information on thinkagainproductions.com. I will put the link to that website as well as his documentary in the show notes. Make sure you watch that. And uh, everyone, this is the most incredible, dear brothers and sisters, this is the most incredible time to be alive. As you walk in light, walk in love, Crack heart, crack wide open your heart and receive the love of God. God is love and God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. And so as we are watching these things unfold, the times and the seasons before us and all the world events and everything that's happening. I mean, if we listed out all the events that are happening, that seem like 10 years ago, if one of these events would have happened, it would have been massive. Now these events happen every single day and it's just common news. But there are so many things that are happening right now, and it is up to each and every one of us to stay in love, walk in love, and be the light in this world. I bless you all. I love you all. I am Lucas Mack. This is the Golden Rule Revolution, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for listening. For support in your journey, go to my website, lucasmack.com.